Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers. The True Cry Podcast. everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is part two of my end of season bonus interview roundup thing. Best of 2023 interviews. So, In part one you heard some memorable moments, some hand chosen clips from my interviews this year, numbers 21 through 33, took us roughly from January till I think early July. In this part two, I'm going to do the exact same thing from interviews 34, which was again just a week later after that uh, last interview you listened to, and that'll take you up until December the 18th, just a few days ago, almost a week ago at this point. Please go back and listen to part one if you haven't already, and of course listen to the original interviews if any of them tickle your fancy. But let's now get into this second part. The first clip you're going to hear is from interview number 34 that I did with Nicola Stow, a ghostwriter. We spoke on July 9th, and in this clip Nicola discusses the case that she's still obsessed with to this day, and her experience of writing to killers in jail. So when you moved to the news of the world then, that's when you probably started reporting on more national crimes, I guess. Do you remember some of the major ones you were reporting on? Yeah, well, my biggest um, case, the one that I'm uh, still obsessed with today, is Peter Tobin, the serial killer. Mm -hmm. So I worked with, um, I actually did the two uh, Vicky Hamilton's parents, uh, a father, stepmom. We did the, the big exclusives. With them, so I spent a lot of time with the, the relatives of the victims, and also Dinah McNichol, um, her dad. I was very close to. He sadly passed away a few years ago, so I used to speak to him on the phone. I used to ring at two, three, four in the morning. <laughs> um, yeah, really, like completely ruined his life. Really, what happened there? But, um, that, that was in the, the story. Like, I mean, as you know, Peter Tobin died in October last year. Mm-hmm. So again, I was talking with Diana's brother. Actually, I remained friends with him, and yeah, various small stories. But he definitely, definitely killed a lot more. It's whether we ever find any more bodies that remains to be seen. Do you think he was Bible John? I don't think so. No, no I think I, um, some people do, don't they? Yeah, some do. I know that um, David Swindle, the, the 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 one who set up um, Operation Anagram, he maintains it wasn't Bible John. I think because it was a very much a, a phrase that was coined, wasn't it, through the police and media after what was said in the car that night. I can't remember who by, but one of the, one of the girls. So yeah, no, I'm not, I don't think so. But I mean, I must admit, some of his crimes do. Some of the circumstances sound very Tobin-esque. Did you speak to Tobin himself, or was it just relatives of you know? I tried. <laughs> um, tried. <laughs> Got into a little bit of trouble with that one actually because I was um, I used to write part of my work I used to write to killers in jail and I usually posing as a pen pal. <laughs> right, okay. I used to do quite a lot, 
I think I actually wrote once pretending to be a 15 year old girl and, and Tobin actually, um, I had a PO box in London and it was, um, yeah, so I, was, I tried various methods to get to him basically. And this was common. I mean, it probably doesn't happen now, but back then, you know, I did try various tricks like that. But my letter ended up in the hands of the then Strathclyde police force. Because <laughs> 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 Tobin had actually, um, uh, and this I think is the closest we'll ever come to a, maybe a admission of guilt from him because he, he handed in the letter saying he was concerned that a 15-year-old would be writing to someone like him. So I don't know, it just made me think because, you know, because he never would admit, would he, his, his um, no. crimes. Yeah, it's curious that that's the one that got his attention, thinking mm-hmm. it was a 15-year-old girl. Did you have any success with other killers you'd wrote to? Yep. There's uh, one called Sean Alexander. Mm-hmm. He's known as the hot tub killer. Okay. He um, he killed his uh, – bear with me because, again, I don't have it in front of me. On a detail. <laughs> <laughs> he killed his ex-girlfriend, Nicola Johnson, and a, a new lover in a hot tub. He was a former soldier. Yeah, that was horrific. So I wrote to him. I spoke to him as well, actually. I had a, another mobile phone. I'd speak to him on and record his phone calls. And it was incredible because he was like – he was saying how much he missed his wife and the first thing he's going to do when he gets out of jail is to go to a grave and lay flowers. And he had a tattoo of her name done while he was in prison. Yeah, it's it's weird (laughs) how their minds operate, isn't it? Next up, we have Bethan Truman, who, as you know, is one half of the true crime podcast Seeing Red with her co-host Mark. They were recently on an episode here. And she was joined by Chris Clark, a former police intelligence officer. We spoke on July 23rd, 2023, interview number 35. And they discussed the conversations they had with DS Stephen Fulcher, who's the man that arrested Christopher Halliwell. That was what their book was about. It's called The New Millennium Serial Killer. Did you have many conversations with Steve whilst researching this book? Were you in contact with him? Uh, I've been in contact contact with Steve through email uh, because most of the time he's in Somalia. Um, yeah, uh, basically from the word go. And he responded very, very e- easily because he found someone who was basically on his side trying to progress unsolved cases he felt very strongly. He didn't have the names. The names were supplied by myself and Bethan. But he's gone along with us, hasn't he, Bethan? Yeah, he's been really on board and really positive in what we've been doing. And um, when we were writing and we'd speak to him, obviously, as you can see from the book, he's he's very kindly written the foreword for the book for us and very keen to see this to fruition, to make sure I read his book and really understand the background of what he went through and what he did mm. um, to get to the points where there were convictions for these two victims and also everything that we can really trust his gut instinct as to why he believes there's more victims. The, the other thing, Stuart, it was very political. Mm. Um, he was singled out, but the the gold, um, the gold command of Wiltshire Police, including the Chief Constable, hung him out to dry because they wanted to distance himself when Becky's dad raised a complaint about it so steve was the full guy but he had the full backing of his gold team and the book the gold book which they used as their master diary suddenly disappeared during the inquiry and only resurfaced much later um and and this is the problem um they the the senior officers uh most of them are up there because they've jumped over other officers' backs to get where they were. In Steve Fulcher's case, he could quite honestly have gone all the way up the ladder to Chief Constable, and he would have been a bloody good one. Mm-hmm. Because he was a he he was a bit like John Stalker and Keith Halliwell. He was prepared to stick his neck out and go back to old-fashioned coppering to get a result. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, reading about the controversy around him and this whole breaching pace thing when he spoke to Halliwell. I just kind of think it just doesn't sit right, does it really? 
It was really fascinating for me because not being from a policing background and whilst interested in true crime, I didn't know the ins and outs of PACE. And we wanted to put the chapter together that would go into detail about this and where he can be seen to have bent the rules or broken the rules or crossed a line and potentially where you could then use that evidence in the opposite way and say that it was the opposite. And for me, researching and then trying to put together this chapter that I could understand and hopefully a a reader could read and understand. Um, It was really tricky because obviously for Chris, he's got that background. He knows what he's talking about. For Steve, he had that background. He's got the train. I was kind of coming at it from a very unknown point of view. And that was one of the chapters for me that I kept kind of like just reading and reading and reading and then go back to. And then how can I put this into just normal language that Mm. a normal person can understand. And even then there's so many gray areas. You can understand how he had to make that decision and how difficult that must've been as an, as an officer to do that. Yeah. Um, Basically pace was brought in in 1984 because of corrupt police officers fitting up innocent people in a nutshell. Before that, we had the judge's rules which was a very eerie theory um, set of rules. And in fact, I've written several books and writing on miscarriages of justice. And all the way through, the judges' rules were breached time and time again. So Pace was brought in to tighten that up to allow a suspect to have his rights. In a hardened criminal case, it works the other way. The, the, um, the potential serial killer like Halliwell knows what the rules are, and and plays them to their own advantage. I'm fully backing pace where a suspect who's no previous convictions and is in a police situation to protect their rights, to access to a lawyer, um, what what food and drink they have to have and how long they can be interviewed with rest periods and all the rest of it. But it, it was abused in the case of Halliwell and his barrister latched onto it. I spoke to Neil Woods next for interview number 36. This was on July 30th. Neil is a former UK police officer and undercover drugs operative. And in this clip, you'll hear him talk about reliving traumatic events and spotting triggers that could set off his complex PTSD. If you don't mind me asking, I don't want to get into it too much because I appreciate it's, it's something that is a daily struggle for yourself based on what I've heard there. But have you noticed any particular triggers that you are now aware of to look out for? Or can it sometimes just blindsight you? Well, that's the strange thing. It, it's never as simple as you as you might expect. You know, it's much to the frustration of therapists who want to force you to uh, relive um, whatever traumatic events are, are causing the problem. And the trouble is, when it's complex, they're multi-layered. You know, I went into undercover work when I was already traumatised and I was compounding uh, the damage. So it's really layered and you can't unpick that so easily. It's the same for most PTSD cases within policing. Normal therapy is really, is really difficult for police. Um, and so uh, the triggers I have are really weird and unpredictable and I find new ones sometimes. You know, it's the gift that never stops giving. And I had a really peculiar one. When I was in, when I moved to Hereford in about 2000 and, in 2013, because I took a car through the car wash and I ended up going through this car wash and I'm like having a massive hypervigilance attack. I'm sweating forehead, sweat dripping off my eyebrows and really struggling, like in total panic in this car wash. I had no idea why. It took a bit of unpicking to remember that I had an instance when I was buying, when I was, when I was phoning up the burger bar boys who had been infiltrated for a few months and getting them to arrange a score. And they had a really thick Birmingham accent and he said, and, he, and I couldn't understand what he was saying. And the fact that I couldn't understand what he was saying was really annoying. And then eventually he shouted, the ark, the ark, the fucking car wash, the ark, you better be there when we're there or, or you're a dead man. I'm thinking, oh, I know what it means now the car wash. So I went to the car wash, the ark, and I'm listening to the cars go through and the whirring and the sponges going down and the squirting. And the... So I'm stood there waiting and I'm waiting over 20 minutes for this guy to arrive 
and my fight or flight syndrome's kicking in. I know how dangerous this guy is. The guy who spoke to me is implicated in seven different murders. He was the person who provided the machine guns for the murder of Letitia Shakespeare and Charmaine Harris a year before. He's a complete nutter. And so my flight or fight syndrome is saying, don't be so stupid. Don't stand there like a muppet. Run away. But my undercover head is thinking, no, I've got to stay here. I've got a job to do. So that whole situation was like 20 minutes of really intense mental battle, which has clearly scarred me. Because because that's that was what was causing the prompting the hypervigilance response in the car wash. I couldn't, it, but I, I had to unpick that, and I don't, I didn't remember it clearly. So it's just one idea of multi-layered things because that wasn't one of the instances during that operation where my life was felt really at risk. Because I mean, you know, they'd assaulted me, they'd stripped me. Strip me, show me a gun to make me to strip earlier on in that operation. I can remember those. I remembered those. I hadn't blotted those out. The things I've blotted out is all the secondary things, like the time at the car wash, where I suppose I'd just become acutely aware of the risk. So every slight risk felt extreme. And, uh, you know, I still expect to uh, travel into some city somewhere and suddenly have a new a new trigger. You know, as I say, it's the gift that doesn't stop <laughs> stop giving. Sky News crime correspondent Martin Brunt was who I spoke to next on August 6th. This was interview number 37. And Martin discusses making mistakes live on air. I'm trying to think when I watch the news and they cut to someone, because typically with the news, most people, if they're like myself, will be kind of half watching the news. So as much as it's such a a high-pressure role, you kind of expect it to go perfect as a viewer. It's only when you hear someone mumbling the words or forgetting where they are or stuttering or something that you sort of look up and think, hang on, what's going on? Do you remember any moments like that in your career when you thought, oh, that wasn't my best effort? Oh, there have been countless um, moments that weren't my best effort. I mean, I, I remember very early on, I used to hate sitting in the studio and talking to the presenter. I find that if I'm on a windswept street, I have much more leeway to to um and ah and stop and start and so forth. I think viewers are probably a bit more forgiving mm. if you're out in the elements. I think in the studio, people expect things to be very slick, and uh, they haven't always been with me. And I'm not sure they always are these days. But there were a couple of – there was one occasion where it was a terror attack. This is years and years ago, and I was still quite new. And I just dried up. And I said, I'm sorry, I've lost my way. So the presenter asked another question um, and I started again. And, and again, I just said, look, I'm sorry, I've, I've lost my way. That was me letting nerves overcome my thought processes. I don't think it would happen now. I mean, sometimes, I do, usually if I go on a bit, uh, I, I'm confident enough to say, Sorry, I'm rambling a bit. Ask me another question. And if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to, I just say, sorry, I don't know that. I mean, let's talk about something else. Or the the classic get out um, is, well, that's an important question, but there are bigger issues. And let me talk about those. Mm. Um, That's a bit of a put down to the presenter, but it gets, makes you look clever and, you know, seamless and, and you move on. So you learn tricks, I suppose, is, is the short answer. Next, you're going to hear a clip from my conversation with journalist and writer Robin Girosse. It's his second appearance on the show. We spoke for interview number 38 on August 20th, and he discussed why he thinks some police officers become corrupt. Why do you think police officers become corrupt in the first place? Yeah, that's a great question. Um I don't think people join the police force to become corrupt. I, I think, um, I mean, there's a few who do, who are referred to as sleepers, who are people who get through the vetting and, and basically are, are always wrong ones who uh, probably have allies in in the criminal world outside. But that, that, I mean, I should think that's very small. I mean, most people don't join to become corrupt. I mean, one or two people that I've interviewed in the book talk quite movingly about this in a way, you know, that, I mean, they join the force 
there's a pressure to want to belong. I mean, you know, your ambition is to join the force. That there's very much a kind of in the ranks kind of mentality. You want to be accepted. You see things going on which perhaps you don't agree with, but it's basically, you know, perhaps your superiors are going along with it or condoning it or turning a blind eye to it. Um, you want to be accepted. And it's the thin end of a wedge. You probably start doing things that you probably wouldn't have imagined yourself doing to start with, but it starts off with small things, you know, like I think a lot of people have studied this and said, you know, it starts off with small things, accepting freebies here and there, the odd coffee, the odd this, turning a blind eye to things. You're under a lot of pressure as well to kind of be one of the team um, and not be someone who sticks out. So it, it can be very difficult if you do stand up against what you see going on. And, you know, I've spoken to Jackie Moulton in, in the book and she tells a rather, I mean, this is absolutely nails why people perhaps go along with things. She did act when um, wrongdoing was reported to her. And as soon as she'd done that, the next time she walked into the canteen at West End Central Police Station, everybody got up and walked out. Wow. And that is a fairly devastating thing to happen to anybody, to have all your colleagues just turn their back on you like that. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of pressure to kind of be one of the team, you know, and um, stick by your mates, really. Yeah. I think luckily Jackie's a strong enough woman to uh... – not be not be put off by a situation such as that. Didn't stop her from having a a stellar career in the police, and you know, absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, that was I think she had some real tough times like that. I mean, that's not that's not fun. No one, most of us could not go to to work with that kind of pressure. I think it would be very. You've got to be a really strong person. On September 10th, I spoke to forensic psychologist Dr. Kerry Nixon for interview number 39. In this clip, Kerry walks me through how a domestic abuse assessment would be conducted. I was reading about your time at Merseyside Police. It said you were training constabularies in domestic abuse awareness mm-hmm. and how to how to interview potential domestic abuse perpetrators as well as the people being abused. You mentioned doing assessments in those situations mm-hmm. with children as well. What would a typical assessment look like? Let's start with let's say a woman who is suspected of being abused by a partner. Okay. And you're tasked with assessing that situation. How do you go about that? What does it look like? Okay. Well, so there's, there'll be lots of different potential assessments that you could do. It depends on, and it's very, very important when you work as an expert witness, you have to get a set of instructions from the solicitor. So your job is to work for the court. So you don't give, you're not biased to whoever is uh, instructing you. It could be the defence, the prosecution, the local authority, whoever it is that's instructing you, and you'll get a clear set of instructions. Now, that could be that you're looking at the risk. So there you would do a domestic abuse risk assessment of how risky is this situation. Um, Or it could be that they're asking about the impact on the child, So then if you're doing that, you'd be looking at working with the child and doing things like looking at the trauma and how they're being traumatized by the situation. So it all depends on what you're being asked to do. There's lots of different types of assessments that you can do depending on those sets of instructions. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now back to the story. How difficult is it then to to get to the outcome of that risk assessment because i imagine if you're speaking to the the suspect there's going to be a lot of fibbing going on and mm-hmm. if you're speaking to the person being abused there might be a lot of victim blaming for themselves excusing the behavior so mm-hmm. how difficult and also, is it sometimes also lying as well because yeah. they might not want to admit that there's abuse going on if they want to stay in the relationship so i've worked on many cases where the victim is saying that they haven't been victimized because they don't want to leave the perpetrator, but they're scared that the child is going to be removed. <laughs> so there's, there's lots of different situations, lots of different situations. And basically in those kinds of cases, I get access to everything. So I get a, what we call a bundle, which is everything possible. So it's social workers reports, medical records, school reports, observations of police officers that have attended scenes, 
police information. I've even had things like video footage of the police video footage when they've arrived at scenes. Um, previous convictions, PNC records. I will interview the victim and the perpetrator and potentially the children as well. And if I use something called the SARA risk assessment, which is a domestic abuse risk assessment that you use, you're interviewing the victim and the perpetrator and potentially witnesses, plus you've got all that documentation. Mm -hmm. So I've just completed an assessment recently and, you know, the amount of information, it's like 600 pages of information that I go through in addition to the interviews. Does that affect your... I use the word bias cautiously because I don't want to think that you would go in already thinking, you know, I know what you've done kind of thing to jeopardize your assessment. But is it, it must be quite difficult to go in knowing what you know and speaking to, you know, the suspect, let's say, knowing what they've been seen to do on camera or on audio calls or whatever to interview them on a professional basis, no? Well, you've obviously, you you generate a picture of what has happened, but there's often that I've read all the information and then you you meet the person and you do a, a maybe a mental health assessment and it doesn't change that actually it might be very apparent that they've still done what is they're being accused of if it's a criminal case. But actually by doing a full clinical interview with them, you you learn about their background. So it's all those different factors. So it might not be that you're trying to say that they didn't do it, but actually this is the formulation. This is why these are the factors that we need to consider and and look at. So determining what happens then, not necessarily getting the person off if it's a criminal case, but understanding why. So for example, uh, cognitive assessments are really important. So there's often murderers who have done something, but they might have, you know, such a low IQ that actually they're functioning more like a, a child age than an adult age. And that's a factor that needs to then be taken into consideration in the court because they may need help in the court to understand the proceedings. So there's so many factors. There's so many different elements to this. For interview number 40, I welcomed back former Scotland Yard Detective Inspector Stephen Keogh. Like Robin, this was his second appearance on the show. We spoke on September 17th, and Steve discusses the true crime suspect paradox. He'd come on the show to discuss his book, Jack the Ripper, a 21st century investigation. The other thing also that I enjoyed about how you've written this is I was always second-guessing these third-party characters you would bring in. So not the witnesses, but the people the witnesses would come across. So there's one from the point of view of a copper and he's he's doing his beat and I think he's pissing down and he just can't wait for the night to end. He's thinking about hiding in a, a yeah. cafe for a cup of tea or something. And he spots this guy, a soldier, I think. Yeah. And he, he says, oh, there's a woman down there with my mate. There won't be a minute. In my head, I'm thinking, who is this guy? Exactly, yeah. Is, it, is, it, is this Jack? And, then with, 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 and his mate is his mate is is there a mate yeah is there, there a mate, mate? Has, know, he, has he killed someone and the guy that yeah. went to work and he said you want to see this body down here and i'm thinking oh is that jack <laughs> <laughs> like, where's this going well, then but, they just but, you, but you know what so um but the, the way i've written it all of those characters that you what think about at some point someone somewhere has said that's jack the ripper um mm. There's very few. There are very few people involved. Even Frederick Abelion, at one point, has been named by some Spanish fella that he was Jack the Ripper. So, yeah, I mean, I I, I call it the true true crime suspect paradox. And what what this is to me is is the difference between detectives and some people who watch true crime is that if a name is mentioned or associated in a case. There will be some people that will immediately say that that's the killer with very little evidence, with very little um, reason other than the fact they know them, they're there. And it recently happened in um, the Nicola Bully case, really sad. Her partner, I can't remember if she was married, but her partner um, went on TV. And because of the way he reacted, people were immediately, oh, he's killed her. Before they even knew whether it was a murder or an accident or whatever, there were people, and they probably still are, pointing a finger at him. 
And and I think if you look at any true crime case that generates a lot of interest, anybody that's associated it, at some point, someone will point a finger at them and say they're the killer. And I think Jack the Ripper is like the epitome of that, where every single people want to solve it. And they can only really go on the names that they've got. They can only go by the names they've heard of. So when you've got millions of people interested in a case, you, you, you will have somebody at some point point a finger at some at one of the witnesses, one of the police officers, et cetera. You did mention as well that you believe that given the amount of leaflets that were put through the doors, the, the sheer volume of logistic nightmare that would have taken, you sort of took your hat off to that. But you reckon at some point, somewhere, the true Jack the Ripper's name has been mentioned on a list that's perhaps just slipped through the net, much like Peter Sutcliffe's did during the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry. Yeah, I mean, no doubt whatsoever. If we were to have every single bit of paperwork that the police generated during that um, investigation, somewhere in there would be the name of Jack the Ripper mentioned at least once. And that's because they spoke to so many people, thousands of people. They were they did an enormous amount of legwork and it would have generated so many names. And there's the, the likelihood is that Jack the Ripper was connected quite s- strongly to the area of Whitechapel, be that he lived there, he worked there, or whatever. So there's no doubt at some point a police officer would have spoken to him because they spoke to everybody. Um but what what you wouldn't be able to do, I don't think, is to be able to say for sure that, oh, yeah, that's Jack the Ripper. You would have all these names, and what would differentiate him from anybody else? I don't know. But but you mentioned Peter Sutcliffe, and that that is a, that's an absolute example of why I believe that's true. So when he was identified, it was established that he'd been stopped nine times and interviewed nine times by the police. It was in the paperwork there. There was even there was even a friend had written in and said that I believe the Yorkshire Ripper is Peter Sutcliffe, but it was a piece of paper that sort of got missed. Mm. Um, and when you're generating that amount of information and you don't have like we do now computers to keep on top of it to cross reference these different bits of information to pick out there might be just a, a throwaway comment in a, in a in a in someone's statement that might mean nothing on its own. But when you load it onto a computer and you match up with others, it suddenly becomes more important. And they didn't have that. So with the thousands and thousands of bits of information they were generating, no systems in place. Even in even in the 1970s with the Yorkshire Ripper, they developed systems to try and keep on top of this, but they were just overwhelmed by the amount of information. So I've no doubt that back then they would have had his name, but they just didn't know it. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Next up, we have Dr. Honor Doro Townsend. This was interview number 41. Honor is a presenter, researcher, and lecturer whom I spoke to on September 24th, and she discusses the importance of ethics in true crime. Let's talk about ethics in true crime, because when I reached out to you, you're the first person that's ever come back and sort of asked me what my... I don't want to say agenda, because that's kind of the wrong word, but what, what what my philosophy is, what my take on it is, what my approach is, is perhaps the best word I can use, which I thought, I thought, no one's ever asked me that before. I was like, shit, <laughs> I, I hope I passed the test, which looks like I did. How important is ethics in true crime? And how often have you seen it be abused, not just by podcasters, but by TV shows like Netflix with the Dharma thing that got a lot of criticism? Yeah, it did. Um, Yeah, I think it's one of those things that people are becoming more aware of, rightfully so. I think I just ask, you know, what people's positioning is before I participate in anything, basically because I don't want to create additional harm, you know, and in the world that we operate in, the work that we do, I always want to know that anything that I'm saying or doing is not going to intentionally cause any additional harm to any parties involved, predominantly around victims' families and that kind of thing, because I don't want to ever exacerbate their issues. Because we also always have to remember that when we're talking about these true crime cases, we're talking about some people's worst day of their lives, you know, when they've lost a loved one to unimaginable circumstances. Don't get me wrong, like I think that the fascination with it and, you know, the morbid curiosity around it is totally natural instinctual behavior in a lot of ways but I just think there are things that those of us working in this field can do to make sure that we're not 
exacerbating that and we're not taking advantage of that. And that's just stuff around, you know, getting informed consent where possible and, you know, having people be involved in the process, having victims' families be involved in the process of developing shows. And you know what, like it, it causes, it's not easy. You know, I'm not going to say that that's an easy thing to do, especially as like independent podcast creators like yourself. But I think it's all around at the very least having a general philosophy of how you're approaching it. And you do see it all the time. I think we have got better, but I do think there's still a long way to go in terms of, you know, it's even stuff like using full names of the victims and also just padding out their stories, you know, and remembering that these are human beings who had a lot more to them than the fact that they became a victim of someone else. You know, it's just recentering where our focus is, I think, because sometimes well, in fact, not even sometimes, I'd say the vast majority of us all, including those of us who work in the field, are familiar with a lot more names of serial killers or mass murderers than we are of their victims' names. Mm-hmm. And that that's myself too. You know, I absolutely, that applies to me, but it's something that I'm trying to actively work on personally. Yeah, I'm the same. I've just done a two-parter on the Yorkshire Ripper case, mm-hmm. but coming at it from the angle of, I called it the Forgotten 13 for the mm-hmm. 13 women that were murdered. He attempted to kill seven more and potentially more. But I was trying to focus on those women because my argument is if you asked 100 people who the Yorkshire Ripper was, they'd say Peter Sutcliffe, mm-hmm. 99% of them. If you ask them to name those 13 women, what's the odds that they could? But it is that. Do you think scale's important as far as notoriety? Because shows like Netflix, to me, have a responsibility, a network, should I say, like Netflix, not shows, to reach out to families, get permission. Sometimes they don't really give a shit and they'll go ahead because they're too too big. But if someone's like bottom-end scale, so you've just started, they might not have the same ethics because they want to be discovered. Now, most people, we're all guilty of it. If you want to find a case, for example, if you wanted to find the Yorkshire Ripper case, you would search for either Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe. Yeah. The odds are you wouldn't search for, you know, Wilma McCann, for example. So we're all guilty of it as consumers as well. Do you think think scale's important as far as responsibility goes? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's, it is a scale, isn't it? And it's, those independent producers of content, I think there are still things that can be done in terms of the kind of language we're using, in terms of ensuring that we're doing our due diligence when we're looking into cases, you know, as preparation to make sure that, for instance, there hasn't been issues in the past with family rejecting content. So there are still things that can be done, particularly around language, because what I don't like is you sometimes see, you know, the odd podcast or, you know, TikTok or YouTube or something of creators who are kind of making jokes and laughing about it. And I understand that I I totally get like a morbid sense of humor. I absolutely do. I think it's just context is key. And it's like I said, we're remembering that this is the worst day of some people's lives. And how would you feel if you clicked on a YouTube link and they were laughing and joking about the way in which your loved one was murdered, you know? So I think those are the kind of small scale things that people can do, but then, yeah, you're absolutely right that big streaming services, big broadcasters definitely have a greater responsibility and they are better now as well. You know, there are a lot more legal steps that have to be gone through before things get to being actually uh, shown. So I know that there is, a lot more in terms of active family consent, not just notifying families, but actively telling them the context of the show, having them involved where they want to be and keeping them in the loop, aftercare provision, that kind of thing. But stuff does seem to happen because then you still had things like Dharma last year, which, you know, there was uh, family members who were saying that they'd not been informed and yet their their likeness was even used in the, dramatization Mm. um it is quite difficult because there is to an extent the fact that this is all public knowledge 
in some ways. So you can understand where the arguments can stem from. I just think my personal philosophy is reducing harm in as much a capacity as any of us individuals can. You know, we all still work in this field, um, make a living in this field even. And it's just a case of doing our best, um, knowing that sometimes that won't work and we learn from that and we grow, but just doing our best to not worsen anything for anyone who's already had an awful time and just use victims' names, you know, tell their stories. You can still try and get into the psychology and understand the criminal mindset, which is what people are so fascinated by. You can still try and work that out, but you can do it still using names, still being accurate and, you know, with, with a bit of heart and care, I think. I then welcomed former prison governor Vanessa Frick Harris MBE on October 1st. This was interview number 42. In this clip, you'll hear Vanessa give me her opinion on capital punishment, as well as discussing rehabilitation. I've got a two-part question for you. The first one, I think I know the answer to. The first part is, what is what's your opinion on capital punishment? I think I know the answer to that based on what you've just said. The second one is, do you believe in rehabilitation? And if so, can that be achieved for everyone or are there limits? So for people like Myra, probably not wise given what she did. I'm wondering what the limit is with that, if you do think rehabilitation is possible. Okay. Uh, Capital punishment. I always used to say, yeah, I believe in it. Absolutely. I'd quite happily do death watch on somebody. Wouldn't bother me in the slightest. Somebody like um, Myra Hindley, Ian Huntley, you know, wouldn't I wouldn't bat an eyelid, absolutely, because I think there are some things that um, go beyond humanity. And, um, you know, like I said, I'm no soft touch, um, but, and I have to put the but in there, as I've got older, maybe I've mellowed a little bit more, um, I I still believe in capital punishment, but not to the extent I used to when I was younger. And I think that is probably maybe I have mellowed a bit. Maybe after nearly 30 years, the other side, maybe maybe I have. Um, I, I I don't necessarily think that the justice system in this country has it right in 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 what we what we dish out. Um, as punishment you know the punishment people need to remember that the punishment to any prisoner is is the taking away of their liberty that's their punishment um and keeping them locked up that's to protect the public so is that enough i mean people go mad when they see you know prisoners with playstations or with tvs and, and but those sorts of things they're not a right they're a privilege. And like all privileges, you know, they can be taken away. But you, if you're working with somebody, this sort of leads on to the second part of the question. If you're working with somebody and trying to rehabilitate them, because part of the prison service statement is to help people lead law-abiding um, and useful lives upon release. If you're working with somebody, not necessarily um, an all-time lifer like Huntley West, um, Myra Hindley, um, but people who have committed um, crime um, and who have been given a set sentence and will eventually be released. If you're working with those, you have to give them a carrot and a stick. You know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. If they want to engage with the reoffending, uh, what's say the reoffending sort of. Um, bus and get on board then that's great but some prisoners don't you know and you can't make um but like i said earlier you know if if you've helped one prisoner to turn their life about and to um be released and become a useful part of society well then that's a good thing reoffending in this country is one of the worst in europe we lock up more prisoners in this country than any of the the prisons in Europe. So why is that? 
a lot of prisons in uh, prisoners in this country are locked up for non-violent offences. That is a bugbear in mind because that 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 is clogging up our prisons with people who should be out in the community saying sorry for you know driving driving while drunk or if they haven't obviously if they haven't if they've killed somebody that's a whole different thing but um you know shoplifting you know when I was at Holloway we had a prisoner come in was a woman was sentenced to six weeks for stealing a British rail sandwich personally I think that was very brave of her but you know was that was that justice was that was that a good use of our funds, our taxes, to lock somebody up for six weeks for nicking a sandwich? Come on. So I think, and then, of course, you've got people who um, have mental health issues who shouldn't be in prison. But, you know, what do we do with them? Where do we put them? There are no such things as mental institutions anymore. The, the whole ethos now is, you know, it's care in the community. Unfortunately, the community doesn't care. So these are all things that, as a society, I think we need to think about. Um, we could do much better with reducing reoffending in this country, much, much better. But, of course, prisons aren't a vote win- winner, not by any stretch. Of it. Nobody's going to vote for somebody who says, I'm going to plough all our money into prisons and re- mm. reducing reoffending. You know, that's that's just not going to happen. Certainly not in my lifetime. Um, and um, and but people forget, you know, every prisoner place is around fifty grand a year. That's what our taxes are going on to keep people who really shouldn't be in prison in prison. So I think, as a society, we need to have a good hard look at the justice system in this country. And I think it's it's it certainly needs um, some major changes. But like I said, it's not a vote winner. So it'd be a very brave politician that stands up and says, well, I'm going to take this on because every single time we get a new government, regardless of which size and we get side, we or um, a new prisons minister, things change. So usually it's something they bring in something we did 10 years ago. It didn't work then and it probably won't work now. So you get you just get this revolving door of, of policies that that. Um, don't work. Every single one of them thinks they've invented the wheel, um, but they haven't because we've usually done it before, and it still it still doesn't work. Um, and really, the only in, the only thing that prisons need is is an injection of cash. And um, you know that's I don't know the, with the cost of living crisis now, are people going to stomach that for committing crime and and putting our cash into jails? I I hardly think so. Filmmaker Reese Edwards is up next. We spoke on October 8th for interview number 43. He came on to promote his documentary, The Rev, about the Reverend Emir Owen, and he talks in this clip about that documentary-making process. Talk to me about the documentary-making process, because me and I imagine lots of people listening, the majority have never made a documentary before. What is the process you go through i assume you do the research first and the last thing you do is the filming but what's kind of the general step-by-step process without getting into too much detail well yeah usually you you would start off researching something um what's interesting i make documentaries for a living and um usually there's always a deadline there's always you know it's going out in six months so it needs to be done you've got you know, a month to do your research and then you've got two months to film, you've got three months in the edit suite. But this happened, we started it just before COVID. So obviously COVID put stop to everything, but I think that helped because we had a lot, lot more time to research it properly. And um, we had researchers working on it as well as ourselves. And yeah, I think that COVID helped because it just slowed the whole process down. Um, so we had a good, you know, we, we've got files this thick on the story. So we knew the story inside out and the psychiatric evaluations is what really changed it because once we had them, it was it changed the whole thing. We, we were just a lot more sympathetic. I mean, if we would have started filming before we got them, then I think it would have been a very different film. But yeah, so 
it took two, two, three years over COVID to, to research the whole lot. And then as soon as we could, we filmed it. So we filmed the Welsh language version first. Um, yeah. And then uh, we filmed the, so we've used the same recreations, but we filmed um, the English language interviews afterwards. Because everyone that, well, everyone that speaks Welsh can also speak English. So right. it's handy if you're making a Welsh story that, you know, it's quite easy to make an English one back to back. I then welcomed all the way from Down Under, prison teacher Paul McNamara on October 22nd. This was interview number 44. Paul talks about not holding a political position on the prison system and also something he mentions in his book called Duty of Care. Care standing for cover arse, retain employment. When you went in, it mentioned sort of on the about section of the book that you never held a political position on the prison system. You knew very little of the workings of a jail. There was mm. one, char- one character in the book, I, f- I forget the character's name, forgive me, but he mentioned duty of care. Now, oh, ca- yeah. care, he said, stands for cover arse, retain employment, which, yeah. listening to the audio book, kind of come across, that was a bit of a eureka moment for yourself as if to think, hang on a minute, there's more to play here than actually caring for the prisoners. Can you tell me a little bit about that? As you said, like, I didn't know much of prisons. I knew, you know, prison wasn't an ideal place to go and, you know, you do something wrong, you end up there. But apart from that, I hadn't really sort of considered it too much. Uh, I'd been fortunate enough to sidestep it myself. Once I did get in there and, you know, they there was a lot of talk when you have uh, meetings and, professional days and there's a lot of stuff about you know duty of care towards you know the prisoners towards yourselves you know safety all those kind of concerns and then the person uh in the book who does talk about care being covering your ass was quite high up in it what i started to see after a while was that when problems did come up when you know they would talk about you know the shit hitting the fan that what was the um, main priority was to cover yourself. If it wasn't going to come back onto you, then you would have that job, you know, for a while. And started to see that there were a lot of different factors in, in, at play within the whole system. There's a lot of politics. There's a lot of different priorities. One thing I try to draw out in the book is there's a big clash between what prisons are actually for, you know, whether they're for punishment, whether they're there for rehabilitation. And, you know, there's a, an ongoing battle uh, that I saw within the system here. And from what I hear from people now that I've had the book out and people have reached out to me from, you know, the states and, and different places, yeah, there seems to be that whole politics behind the whole system as well right across the world. Author April Taylor was up next on November 20th. This was interview number 45. And she discusses her Luke Ballard series. This is Tudor History in an Alternate Timeline. You've done this non-fiction book, of course, but I've been looking before that. You've done some fictional books. You've got this series here about Luke Ballard. Or Ballard. Yes. Ballard. 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 Sorry, Ballard. <laughs> this is a, a, a fictional Tudor set series of books where Anne Boleyn wasn't killed. Am I saying that? Yeah, I I call it Tudor history in an alternate timeline. Yeah. And basically the idea rooted itself in about 2007 when I kept hearing the phrase in my head, Henry's black-eyed boy. Okay. And it took me a while to work out that any son that Anne Boleyn had would probably have had very dark eyes. This is then where, where authors start playing the what-if game. So what if Anne had actually delivered the boy child that she is thought to have lost in 1534 and brought him to term and delivered him, and he is now Henry IX? That was the original start of it. But I wanted, because I've got a bit of a, an interest in the paranormal, I wanted, I wanted there to be a sort of a magical element, but it had to be very, very, very controlled. And I ended up with an apothecary in Hampton, the green of Hampton Court Palace. 
and he was an elemancer who performs magic just using the elements. So it's very controlled. He doesn't just wave his hand and <laughs> things happen. He's not a wizard. Well, it could be a wizard or a, or a necromancer or whatever. Yeah. And it originally started with a conspiracy within the palace to foment trouble for the for the new young Henry the Ninth. And in the interests of the balance of the universe, the elemancers who work for the good of all in the light of God had to have enemies. And the enemies were Sunderers. And Sunderers just wanted to foment trouble and strife and make money out of it and get power and all the rest of it. And because all my stories have dogs in them, my elemancers had dogs called Grey Springs, which had the sight abilities of a greyhound and the scent abilities of a Springer Spaniel, except in Tudor times they were called Springing Spaniels. So they have they have Grey Springs. So, of course, the Sundras had to have dogs as well, and they're nasty little dogs called Umbrans. That's what started it. And I wrote the book and I sent it to an agent in Florida who loved it and landed me a three-book contract but it was for an American audience. And although there are a lot of Americans who know a lot about British history, there are more who don't. So it became more of a tell book. It was an adventure story about how Luke, my apothecary, sort of defeats the Sunderer and rescues the king, blah, 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 blah. And that turned into three books for them. They were marketed under the collective title of the Tudor Enigma. By the time I'd finished number three, I have to say it wasn't the happiest time of my life doing those three books. And I'm not going to say any more about that. So I, I declined to write anymore, but I couldn't write about the people in the books for another seven years. So I went on to write other things. And then I decided when I got my rights back that I needed to start again because I needed to make them better books. So I started by writing a completely new first book, which I think I published back end of last year, called Dangers of Destiny. And that takes place in the last months of Henry VIII's life, when he is lying sick under an evil spell in Hampton Court Palace, and it's the usual adventures. But Anne Boleyn is still alive, and um, she is also an elemancer, except that women aren't allowed to be overt elemancers. It's just sort of like an adventure series set in history, with as much Tudor history remaining authentic as I can possibly make it, and a bit of paranormal thrown in. It's a bit like a stew, really, you know. <laughs> Add another carrot, yes. <laughs> a smorgasbord. That's well. the one, yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's a good description of it, yes. Yeah. I then welcome Dan Corn and Diana Carter. Dan is the VP of Programming at A&E Networks UK. Di is the Commissioning Editor and Head of Talent at A&E. Their interview was number 46 on December 11th, and they discussed working with production companies. Their upcoming show, Cops Gone Bad, was produced by ITN Productions. I'm interested in how a production company is selected for this. By the sounds of it, you've got relationships with a few. So first of all, how is that selection made? But secondly, what's your relationship like with the production companies? What are you expecting from them? I mean, the, the, the production companies are, are often self-selecting. I, you know, it's very sort of meritocratic in the sense that we, you know, we're looking for the best ideas and the companies that come forward with the strongest ideas are those that we invariably work with. And having the strongest idea uh, for us is usually a company that, knows our current output and is aware of sort of the brand and what it does and and very and, and are very specific in their ability to pitch to our requirements in terms of the way the relationship evolves and how that relationship has to work it has to be a a close relationship one of mutual respect and you know it, it's it's a completely sort of creating a piece of work is needs to be a completely sort of symbiotic relationship you know, it can't be unequal. It can't be, you know, master and servant or whatever, whatever. However, it just needs to be them and us getting together on a regular basis and working out what is best for the show, what works for the show. That's the most important thing. 
Where does that final decision end? I'm guessing with you guys, just regarding which cases are selected, for example, throughout the series. I mean, I think, again, I think it's a, it's a real team sense check to a certain extent. I mean, we had a conversation earlier this week about a, another production where we have to look at stories we've covered before how they've been covered before. We want um, our storytelling to bring something new to the table or a different angle or pose questions that we haven't thought of to our viewer, our consumer, because we all call, they're all armchair detectives. And I think anybody who really loves true crime, and it's not a guilty pleasure uh, because they're really important stories. I think they're all armchair detectives. We have an armchair detective in all of us. So we want the stories that we cover to pose questions, I think, or or pique the curiosity or sort of platform the facts of the matter. And I think that, you know, we often compare our internal team's views on, on what stories should be covered. So I think it's very much a kind of collaborative effort along with the producer, obviously, which is really important. It's exactly right, exactly as Di describes it. But I think in t- the buck stops with us. You know, I think that um, we... The, the the producer will bring a lot of cases and we will sort of work with them and say look where can we bring something new you don't want again to sort of be regurgitating mm-hmm. stuff that's been done before how can we break new ground where are the cases where we can either bring a new contributor or reveal a new bit of forensic information or a bit of new source material but ultimately we're responsible for what goes on the network so that's our final call and finally, to end 2023, I welcomed Nikki Perfect to the show on December 18th. This was interview number 47. Nikki is a former hostage and crisis negotiator, and she discussed in this clip what happens during a negotiation. Just talk me through from arriving at the scene, because in the films, right, I know it's mainly like big buildings, diehard hostage situations. You don't think of people threatening to end their own lives and stuff, which I'm assuming you'd get brought in for also. I'm I'm guessing you don't arrive on the scene like, you know, Rocky Balboa walking down and, you know, here's here comes the champion kind of thing. Just talk me through what happens from your arrival there and then over the course of that eight hours, what's actually happening? So on arrival, you get a briefing. So the instant is run by a instant commander who is normally a sergeant or inspector at the local police station so they have overall responsibility as a negotiator i am just a resource to that um, instant commander so they make all the big decisions they carry the burden of if it all goes wrong i have to make sure i've done everything right um and, but also the joy of if it all goes well i you know that'd be great so negotiators are just a, a, an option. So I arrived on scene. I had a briefing with the instant commander and there are also uh, the negotiator coordinator. So in negotiation, you have a negotiation coordinator who's responsible for looking after the team and taking the initial call and making the decision who to deploy and how many people and what that looks like. And they are also the person that links in with the instant commander. So they they stay with them. and tell them what's happening they're also the person that sets the strategy and so then I get my strategy from my coordinator who will say you know this is what I want you to try and achieve so just getting most most of the time it's just getting people to talk because they don't want to talk to you the majority of the time in police negotiations people do not want to talk to you so they don't you don't just turn up and they suddenly start offloading everything you have to build a relationship with people but in any negotiation in anything that you do, from talking to your kids, trying to get them to bed, to having a negotiation with your partner about Christmas, which uh, we're recording this in December, so that's always important. It's always about always about building relationships and getting people to a point where they trust what you're going to say, they trust what you're going to suggest. So I then went, I had a, another negotiator with me, and we we went and started trying to engage. I was the person that was doing the talking. The other person was there to uh, help with the listening and to sort of when nothing's happening and you bounce ideas off each other. So there's like the friend to the lead person, the coach to the lead person. 
so it was raining. I remember it was raining hard and all the experienced negotiators had great big golfing umbrellas. I remember thinking, yeah, note number one, always take an umbrella. But during the time, you don't even remember that it's raining or that it's cold or anything like that. You're so focused on what you're doing and what your role is. So I'm I'm trying my so my first job is to try and get him to engage with me, just anything, just even look at me, because he's not even looking at me. He's holding the child and he's ignoring everything that is happening around him. So I should imagine, knowing more about human behavior, that he would just had a lot of thought process. He was probably in fight, flight, or freeze, didn't really know what to do, found himself in a situation that he hadn't planned for. Here he was surrounded by police. So he had had a lot of emotional thoughts going on. Don't want to go back to prison, all those sorts of things. So I'm fighting against that, his internal dialogue and and what's going through his head without really even knowing that. So just trying to engage him, trying to get him to look at me, trying to get him to wind the window down, try and get him to start thinking about the situation we're in and what's going to happen next. And that that took a long time. It takes a long time. I remember like after three or four hours, he wound the window down that much, you know, just so that, and I was like, well, that's a breakthrough, you know, he's on the window. (laughs) So that's good. So just being there and, and keeping talking to him and, and sort of trying to get a response, trying to work out what might be happening for him. Yeah. And that, you know, just being told to go away in the politest of terms to start with. And then, you know, you don't understand. And and when I reflect back, I'm thinking, well, actually, you're right. I probably don't understand, really, because I've never lived your your life. I don't know what it's like to be you. So, yeah, very. So, and then during the time, as the time goes on, there'll be the instant commander and the negotiation coordinator will be talking about tactics and, and plans for the future. And then you might go and have a meeting with them and have a conversation with them. And they'll be saying, like, right, look, can you try this next? Or this is what this is what you want. This is what we want you to do next. So there's lots going on in the background that you're not privy to, because if you're given too much information, that might then show on the conversation that I'm having with you. Yeah, your role is just to engage them and and, and keep them safe, really, and get the safe release of the child. Well, there you go. That was the final part of this two-part best of 2023 interview series. All the interviews I've done, I think there was 27 from memory. Hoping to continue that momentum next year. I've got a couple of guests lined up already. So hopefully this time in 2024, I'll release something similar. I hope you've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed refreshing my memory and bringing all this together. I just want to say I hope you all have a great time over the holidays, whatever you celebrate, however you celebrate and with whomever you celebrate. Stay safe, look after yourself and look after your loved ones. Have a good Christmas. If you celebrate it, have a happy new year. If you don't hear from me before then, you probably will. I'll see you in 2024. Cheerio.